Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I don't care if you think you're not a good writer. I'll make you better. That is what Betsy Rappaport tells the writers who work with her. She helps people get heard by helping writers bring their ideas to life using their authentic voice while telling their story. Betsy has been a book editor since 1981, most recently as executive editor at Random House, working with numerous bestsellers, including Martha Beck, Carrie Fisher, Dean Ornish, and many more. Betsy's favorite books to edit are memoirs, and she leads numerous writing workshops across the U.S. Publisher David Rosenthal from Simon & Schuster says, Betsy Rappaport is like a CSI specialist. She finds the book hidden inside that pile of a manuscript blocking the view across your desk. Patiently, carefully, and with a fine sense of adventure, she mines the treasure you always knew was there. Betsy's here to talk about the writer's journey and what's it really like for all writers. Betsy, hello and welcome to my show. Thanks, Corinne. It's great to be here. So I want to talk because not only are you an editor, but you're also a writer. So you've been on both sides of this. You've worked for publishing houses and now you have your own business where you work with writers. Um, so there seems to be sometimes this mystique of what's it really like for writers? Here are these great writers and I could never be like them. What do you have to say to that? Well, it, it's the, the hardest step to being a writer is being okay with not being a very good one when you begin. And I think there's a misconception that, you know, good writers are born. I think good writers are made through lots and lots of practice and sitting your butt down and your, at your desk and doing the work. And I think the hardest job I have when I first begin to work with writers is convincing them that the muck and the mire of the early stage is, is not only, not only inevitable, but it's essential. I mean, I always tell my writers, you're fabulous, but you are not so special that you get to skip that step. <laughs> so everybody has muck and mire to go through? Oh, everybody. I mean, there's my favorite joke about this is about this guy who walks along and he sees this other fellow digging away in a huge pile of horse manure. And the guy is just digging and digging and digging and digging. And finally, the guy says, I just have to know, what are you doing? And the guy with the pitchfork says, I figure with all this horse poop, there's got to be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> and so really the task of the writer is to find the pony in the poop. And that just takes time. So that gives a lot of people, I think for newbie writers out there, some faith in, okay, there's muck and mire. This is the process. And that is okay. I can calm down and just write instead of getting in my own way. Right. But it's not just an inevitable step, I think it's really essential because there really is gold in Vendar Hills if you're willing to mine for it. And sometimes you have to get all the muck out onto the page. First of all, it, it just emptied it out of your head so it's not rattling around in there. And second of all, when it's down the page, you can begin to sort through it. And sometimes the germ of the really fantastic idea is hidden 
in that crappy sentence, that crappy paragraph, crappy chapter, who knows? It's in there somewhere, but you'll never find it if you don't get it out onto the page, you know, electronic or otherwise. So I think it's a generative place to be, not, not just a terrible, you know, inevitable slog. You shouldn't want to skip that step. So what you're saying is don't let that crappy paragraph or that crappy sentence stop you or define you. Keep digging deeper because there will be gold on the other side. Absolutely. I mean, Anne Lamott has canonized this and using a word that I don't think I can say on radio. She calls it your blanky first draft. Um, I always tell my writers, it's none of your business how many of those blanky drafts you're going to create. I mean, with, with most of the writers with whom I work, it's six drafts, 10 drafts, 20 drafts, however many. Don't get hung up on the number. It's not a counting game. You know? mm-hmm. And there's nothing that says, if I do X many drafts, then I'll be done. You're, you're going to get there when you're going to get there. As, but just the task is to be fully immersed in whatever stage you are in and not to keep wishing it away and, and, and trying, to, trying to plow through it without actually doing the work involved. How do your writers keep going when it's the sixth draft or the 20th draft? How do they keep going? For me, it's a question of toggling between what I call eagle vision and mouse vision. Um, when, on certain days, you're going to want to be a mouse. You're going to be wanting to be flat on the ground with a very tiny little piece of real estate in front of you to explore. Maybe that's the day where all you can do is come up with a fabulous description of someone's hair. Or maybe all you can do is try to capture a few snippets of dialogue for one of your characters. You know, it'll be a tiny little, I mean, Anne Lamott calls them postage stamps. It's just a day to work really small and nibble around the corners of something huge. Maybe that something huge is a paragraph. Maybe it's a chapter. Maybe it's an outline. Other days you want to be, you know, the eagle. You're kind of soaring above the proceedings, looking down. And that's maybe one of those days where it serves you to think more in terms of the big picture. Okay, what's this narrative arc going to look like? What do I, you know, what characters are being neglected as I move forward in my novel? Big picture thinking. And so the point is just don't get stuck. If you're stuck, you know, if you can't go from mouse vision to eagle vision, go take a walk, you know, move. I mean, as I'm speaking to you right now, I am, I'm, I'm amazed there isn't a moat around the island in my kitchen because I think better <laughs> on my feet. And some of my best writing is done when I'm not actually at the keyboard. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say for fear of bringing it down on my head, but I'm actually kind of surprised I haven't chipped my teeth on the elliptical at Planet Fitness because I just jump into something, some repetitive, you know, activity, walking is my favorite, that just jumps me into my right brain and frees me creatively. There's no reason to get stuck when you have all those tools at your disposal. So Betsy, I tend to do my best writing in my brain when I'm at yoga, when I'm the furthest away from a computer. And I always joke, I wish I had like a USB port in my head so I could download it (laughs) because then it would be done. (laughs) So how do you go from walking around and writing to actually getting it on a computer screen or on paper? Well, my uh, people who come to my workshops always get two things. One is they get a Fisher bullet space pen. Do you know what these are? No. These are the pens that the astronauts actually take into space because no matter what angle you write in, the ink still flows. So <laughs> if you're having a little, 
a depressing day, <laughs> you're flat on your back staring at the ceiling, you can still write with a Fisher Space Pen. Um, the bullet pens have nice rounded edges, so they won't punch a hole in your pocket or your purse or whatever. And then I always carry a tiny little journal. Unfortunately, I tragically discovered that my favorite Salama Lee passport journals, which are these skinny little things that fit so readily into your pocket, had been discontinued. So I'm now on the hunt for another tiny little place. But even if you just, you know, fold an index card into your pocket or a, a spare, you know, a, you know, a, a little corner of a paid paper, have something to write on, have your smartphone at the ready so you can take notes. A lot of my writers love Evernote. Um, if, you're, if you can't write it, then use the dictaphone option on your smartphone and just tack something lightly into place, just enough to jog your memory so that when you are at the keyboard, you can transcribe it and jump off from there. So then you're not starting at that horrid blank page that so many of us detest. <laughs> exactly. And is there, because you mentioned Evernote, is there a difference or is there a better way to do freehand versus doing it on the computer or is that a personal preference? I think it really is a personal preference. I, I am a very old school linear girl. I mean, I really love just straight up word processing, type, 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 type. I have a lot of my friends who are very visual, and for them, Evernote is just fabulous because you can, you're moving those big chunks of type along. And if your listeners don't know, just, just go to YouTube and type in Evernote, and you'll see some beautiful tutorials that will you know, it'll let you know, is this the right tool for you? You know, and play around with it. See what works best for you. Okay. I just always like to have some way to nab that great idea because I never know when it's going to occur to me. Um, those liminal places, the hypnagogic and hypnopompic spaces between when you've just woken up and you're just falling asleep, those are really generative times. So it's, it makes a lot of sense to have something on your nightstand so you can jot down some great ideas as you're just falling asleep or you're just waking up. And the more you make this a practice, you know, the more readily you have that notebook and pen at the ready, you know, you'll sort of train yourself to think and act like a writer and you won't miss those great ideas. You'll just, I mean, again, you don't have to write a whole thesis here, just a couple words, maybe a couple sentences, and then you'll have something to jump off from. No, well, that's great advice. And that also, because I know that when I would go to Bikram and I'd have these great ideas and I would even just ask the yoga teacher afterwards, can I take a scrap piece of paper and I could jot stuff down? Mm-hmm. I had something to carry out. So it took me, what, 30 seconds? Right. But, and, and I had something to carry out. And the versus, words didn't blur with your sweat. Good for you. But versus saying, oh, I'll remember that. And then, you know, when I get behind the computer, I'm like, oh, what can I go find on Facebook? <laughs> I kind of get lost in I'm the I'm a good world. scientist. I have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the phrase, I'll remember that, does not apply when it comes to me. <laughs> I, have, I have tested that hypothesis numerous times. It's not true for me. And I, I dare say it's not true for a lot of people. Oh, this is so great. There's no way I'd ever forget it. Guess what? <laughs> and, and most of my writers begin really modestly. They've got dozens of Word documents. I just tell them, fling everything into them. Like, you don't have to have it fully cooked. If, if it's just the right word or the right sentence, just fling it into a Word document and put it on your desktop so it doesn't get lost. And then have a little faith in the process that you will begin you know, the organization of whatever you're writing at some point is going to begin to suggest itself if you just pad it into place and have a little faith in the process. 
my wonderful memoir writer, Susan Edsel, has a wonderful sentence. I will be the Sherpa of your hope until you can hold it for yourself. In other words, you know, let, let an editor or some other, you know, writing accountability partner reassure you, listen, if you just keep going, eventually you're going to get there. Okay. So it sounds like one is to develop a practice where you give yourself a little bit of space for knowing, well, I guess one is knowing when you have that awareness, that creativity that flows, right? For you, it's walking, for me, maybe Bikram or driving, but for the listeners out there to really pay attention to when are they writing in their head and then being able to create some space afterwards to write down, jot down some stuff that they can later on use for writing. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, but I want to be really clear. I have zero romantic notions about writing. I mean, for me, it's really simple. You sit your butt down and you write, and that means you have to develop a writing practice. I do not sit there and think, okay, I'm going to wait for the muse to strike. You know, if that is, if I, writing is my profession. I cannot afford to let the, you know, let the muse strike whenever he or she wishes. I have to create that opportunity by creating a writing practice. And so what I tell my, re- my writers is you've got to find a practice that works for you. And everyone is different. I think the most common misconception is I need ideal conditions for my writing practice. I and mean, I hear typically things like, well, you don't understand, Betsy. You know, I have small children. Or you don't understand, Betsy. I work, you know, a 60-hour work week. Or you don't understand. The only time that I have free is at night and I'm not a, I'm not a night person. Or you don't understand. The only time I have free is, is first thing in the morning and I'm, I'm not a morning person. And I'm not very romantic about those excuses either. I say, great. You don't think that's true? Test that assumption. A psychologist will, will tell you that it's probably about three weeks for you to establish a brand new pattern or practice. And so I think if you have tried something, if you tell me, okay, I'm not a morning writer, I will say, great. Okay. For the next three weeks from 6:30 to seven, I want you to write. And if at the end of three weeks, that's really not working for you, I think you've given that a fair shot, but don't tell me that you can't do something if you haven't really tested it thoroughly. I mean, I just finished a writer's workshop in my home a couple weeks ago and I made the participants write every morning for 20 minutes. And half of them had told me, you don't understand, Betsy, I'm not a morning person. And they wrote fantastic stuff. They were so glad that they had tested that assumption. So what I hear you saying is that even if there's people that have resistance, go and test out that resistance and see if it really is true or if it's a story that we have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you don't want to stop yourself. So why are you letting those thoughts in your head stop you before you've started? It's so liberating when you learn that it's absolutely not whatever notions you have about when you can and cannot write, most of them are not going to be true. But you won't know that until you test them. And so testing it out for three weeks. I mean, we can all figure, we can all create that kind of a space and that deliberate practice for three weeks, right? That's not the rest of our lives. It's three weeks. Absolutely. You know, and, and approach it playfully. I and mean, this doesn't have to be dire. And, you know, you can have some flexibility within it, but, but just the first step is to commit yourself to say, I am a writer. So what does it mean to be a writer? It means you write full stop. That's it. It doesn't mean you've published. It means you write. And once you claim that space for yourself, things begin to fall into place. You do begin to listen to dialogue more carefully when you're at the store and at the mall. You do begin caring about jotting down those ideas on that index card or on that little notebook you've started carrying. Once you declare yourself 
you know, you're more willing to, to play with whatever the right practice is to develop your work. But it begins with a commitment. I am a writer. And, and I want to clarify again, because you said this, it doesn't mean that you've been paid for your work. It's about no. you c- committing to that title. Absolutely. I think a lot of people come to me and their idea of the shiniest possible brass ring is publication, right? My life won't have meaning. My work isn't quote unquote legitimate until I'm published. And the first thing I do is disabuse them of that notion. I don't think that's the right shiny brass ring to grab for. I think the shiniest ring of all is to discover your own authentic voice on the page. Because when you do that, there's no part of your life that it doesn't improve. When you know how to express yourself and get your points across, tell me where that that ability to communicate doesn't make your life better. Mm -hmm. So how does one discover their own authentic voice? A lot of it is sit your butt down time. (laughs) I mean, are you surprised that I answered that, Corinne? (laughs) Because let's face it, often what happens is when you first start to write, you know, you probably have your favorite writers in mind. And I, you know, since I've been doing this since 1981, I've been through waves and waves and waves and waves of this. I mean, last year, everybody was reading, you know, Jenny Lawson's fantastic book. Let's just pretend this never happened. Are you familiar with her? She's the bloggist. No. Ah, you have such a treat in front of you. Go buy her book, which is wonderful. It's just an absolutely delightful memoir. And she's really freewheeling and profane and hilarious. And so what happens is, you know, my electronic transom, you know, suddenly fills with people trying to be freewheeling and, and profane and hilarious, just like Jenny Lawson. And when Eat, Pray, Love was, you know, mm-hmm. on the bestsellers, same deal. So it's very typical to, when you, when you first begin writing, you know, you, you start kind of mimicking the style of the people that you most admire. Typical, normal, that's fine. No harm, no foul. You just have to kind of write that out of your system. And so you're going to shake that off. Um, Another thing you may want to have, you may need to shake off is the way many of us were taught to write in, you know, high school and college, you know, a very stilted formal way. That's not how you, that's not your natural voice either. And so there are often some bad writing habits to unlearn and that just takes practice and time. And so you'll begin to see your own voice emerge on the page as long as you're willing to put in the butt time to figure it out. So when you're, we're trying to shake off these things that we're so ingrained, right, and we were conditioned and programmed to do from, from our education, how do we know that what we're doing now, we are able to shake it off? Is it going back and rereading what we wrote? Is it... Uh, you know, reading it out loud is a great way. Okay. I mean... <laughs> especially when you're working on things like dialogue and, and, you know, the best way to discover is this my natural voice is read what you've written out loud. Does it sound like you? Probably not when you're first sitting down to it. So does it go back to when we when, write the way we talk? I think so. I mean, not, you know, if, if you were to do a transcript of the conversation you and I are having, we'd find lots of ums and hesitations and we started a couple sentences so not precisely, mm-hmm. but I think the best writing you know, hues much more closely to our, the way we speak okay. than, you know, the way we were taught to write, you know, from a very formal perspective, you know, the dreaded expository essay, for example. And of course, a lot of it depends on what you're writing. If you're writing an academic treatise, yes, it will be more formal. I hope not that much more formal, but, you know, if you're writing a novel, I hope you relax your writing style. <laughs> I hope you 
you know, dig in deep and find your voice there based on how you sound. I mean, your, your ear for dialogue will improve when you read your work out loud. Okay. So and when you become a more effective spy for the dialogue of people around you. And, and so that's the process of dis, or that's one of the processes of discovering your authentic voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, we, so reading it out loud and then what about sharing it with other people? I think it's really important to share your work. I mean, writing is a very lonely business, but I think it's important to find the right group of, of writers. Um, someone who's super critical of your work can shut you down like no one's business. And so it's a process. The same way you have to try a couple different ways to settle into the right writing practice, you may have to try several times to find the right people who are going to be in your writing accountability group. Um, when you begin, often you're right, you, know, you feel very tender about your writing. And many of the people with whom I work have, in fact, been closed down, often by very loving, well-intended people. You could never write a book. Who do you think you are? You know, I personally <laughs> was set back about 10 or 15 years by a really unkind high school teacher. I don't really know what his motivations were, but I do know that the way I received them made it impossible for me to think that I would ever be able to be a writer. And so I needed to be very tender with myself when I first started writing. Um, I was very judicious about the people with whom I shared my early work because I knew them to be very kind and clear. And the thing is, it's not helpful if you have a group of readers who only ever say, oh my gosh, that's so amazing, Corinne, you're wonderful. And that's good to hear, but it doesn't help you improve as a writer. Mm -hmm. So what you need is people who can deliver constructive criticism in a really kind way. And one of the huge revelations that I, <laughs> I, that hit me was, you know, I started editing in 1981. I didn't actually publish my first article until 1994. It was in the New York Times Magazine, and it was called The Story of Z. It was a, an allegedly humorous essay on my theory that sleep was the sex of the 90s, because I was a very exhausted young mother of two, and all I yearned for was a good nap, right? Not a good roll in the hay, just a good nap. <laughs> and so... I, when I wrote that piece, I felt like I was completely writing from the heart, but I only showed it to two other people. And then when I first shared it with them, I was ridiculously frightened. And the funny thing is, like, when we think about publishing our, our work in, say, a national magazine, potentially millions of readers will read it. And I didn't care about those readers at all. I cared <laughs> desperately about what these two people who were themselves published writers and whose uh, you know, criticism I really valued would think. And so I kept that circle very, very small until I felt more confident about my work. And I think that any fledgling writer should do the same. You get to decide who's on your team. And if someone in your writing circle proves to be unable to deliver a constructive criticism in a kind, clear way, you just have to very kindly disinvite them. It's too important. Ooh, that's very important. Well, that reminds me of um, Brene Brown when she was a guest on the show one of the things that she talked about was um, vulnerability and you, sh- and you share your vulnerability with someone who's earned the right to hear mm-hmm. it, right? And, and I would think that with writing, I mean, that's, if, especially if we're writing from our hearts, that's a very tender place, as you say. And so it's, again, about sharing it with somebody who's earned the right to hear it in a safe, compassionate manner, but not blowing smoke, right? And saying, Absolutely. oh, you're, you're a rock star, 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Especially because I mean, the books I love to edit the most are memoirs. And so those are almost by definition the most vulnerable kind of writing we can do. Mm-hmm. And so you really have to be tender and compassionate with yourself. I mean, you're creating a sacred space. Um, so that's about the authentic voice. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the eagle vision and the mouth's vision. Mm-hmm. And I want to tie that with about, you know, you were talking about the muse, right? When when we're doing eagle vision and mouse vision, is that because when we're sitting down, that's kind of where our brain is and that's where we're, you know, right now it's like, oh, I really want to focus on this eagle vision. Or is it also maybe a combination of, you know, if you're editing with somebody and you're saying this needs to be cleaned up, is it as the writer going, okay, I have to be in eagle vision today because this is what Betsy's told me I need to get done? Hmm. Well, I think you're you're discussing two different subjects. Like okay. when do you decide to be an eagle versus a mouse, and what about editing? Okay. So which one? Do you Let, want let's to delve t- let's first? talk with eagle versus mouse. I think really the best way to decide whether you want to be an eagle or a mouse is you know how you feel stuck. I mean, when I'm writing something, I typically end the day by having a kind of sort of game plan for where I want to pick it up the next day. You know, I, I began my career at Scribner's and, you know, Ernest Hemingway's publisher. And Hemingway was famous for weaving half a sentence in his typewriter. So he'd be able to, you know, sit down the next day and, and literally just the first thing, just type the rest of that sentence. So he felt like he had some sort of forward momentum. So I try to have a game plan. But for those times when I'm really stuck, um, I, don't, I don't let myself say, okay, you're writer's block, you're excused. Mm-hmm. I find something where I can, some place where I can create forward momentum. So if I am working on a tiny little scene, like maybe I am, it's really important for me to describe my childhood bedroom, for example. If I can't break that down into, you know, okay, so what did my, what toys were on my shelf? If I can't ask myself enough prompting questions, I might decide, okay, that's the wrong little piece of real estate. Can I find another piece of real estate? And if I keep asking enough questions, I will probably find some little tiny place to serve my mouse. And if that fails, then I can step back and say, okay, well, let me get a, let me get out the outline for what I'm working on. Or let me go back to where I dropped the outline and see if I can fill in something bigger there. So it's eagle versus mouse is the way that I use to, to unstick myself when I'm really feeling like I'd like to be able to have that excuse. Oh, oh, I couldn't write today. I had writer's block. I don't want sympathetic nods. That's not going to help me. I want a solution. So that's the solution that works for me. So it's a, it's a strategy then, right? Absolutely. Yeah. In, instead of focusing on what isn't working, it's like, okay, it, do I want to go the eagle way or the mouse way? And what's the strategy that I can implement? What are the questions that I can ask? What's something I can focus on to move forward? Mm-hmm. In other words, if you've reached a, a temporary dead end working in one little place, fine. Okay, I'm not going to sit there and say, stay there until you've busted through it. Although you can certainly try that. And, and I recommend you do try from time to time. I'm saying, okay, go find some other place where you can create some kind of forward momentum. So you don't feel like you're just twiddling your thumbs doing nothing. Okay. So that brings me, because I've interviewed a lot of authors on the show and sometimes they'll say they write, they write, and a lot of stuff just gets thrown out, right? Or Oh, probably about 90%, right? <laughs> so when you are a person who's, you know, so, especially women are always basing their, their measure of worthiness 
on productivity and what they're accomplishing, how how do you go into that eagle or mouse um, vision, that mindset, and then knowing that maybe you're writing something, developing something that won't be used? Um, well, I'm, I wouldn't apply the eagle mouse okay. you know equation to that, but I think that the more important issue is the idea of measuring your productivity by how many minutes you wrote or how many words you generated. I don't think that is necessarily a winning strategy because it's it's about I, I in the same way that I don't think publication is the right brass ring <laughs> for you to grab for. I think that setting time goals and and word count goals is useful, but I don't want you to hang your worth as a writer on them because it's so important, as I said right off the bat, you know, to spend time in the muck and the mire. And that means that you will throw out a lot of writing. Um, as an editor, it's not my job to care how much time you spent on that paragraph, that chapter, that character. Um, I tell people, my job is to murder your favorite children. It's not my job to care who they are. I mean, if, if the writing doesn't serve, it's got to go. And so I don't want you to be so precious as to say, but Betsy, you can't cut that. You know, I spent 50 hours on it. You know, I don't care. <laughs> the right measure is, is the, is the right writing serving? You know, is it getting you where you want your readers to go? And if it's not, then it has to go. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't worthwhile. It was just part of the process. So be okay with some of the writing just absolutely sucking. That's all right. So, and I really don't ever look at it as a waste of time just because writers end up not using a lot of what they write. Because that's going, part of the process. Yeah. I mean, if, to the degree that you can stop yourself from judging yourself, you will be much more effective. So how does one go about stopping themselves from judging themselves? <laughs> I have to say, it was so funny. Um, it was, you know, 14 years from... Let's see, you know, 1981, I started editing. 1994, I published my first article. So the funny thing is I had been editing other people's work for 13 years. And I prided myself on being clear and kind. And then I was on the other side of the desk and I was getting edited. And oh my God, what a, what a different experience that was. I mean, my cheeks would flame red when I discovered a mistake I'd made that the good editor had caught. Or more typically, I'm embarrassed to admit, I would just be furious. How dare that person touch my beautiful prose? And what I learned is, you know, what I should have known all along, because after all, people were paying me for it. Everybody needs an editor. Everybody, everybody, even editors need editors. Um, I had one book writer. um, It took us two books before we realized that he needed 48 hours to cool off after he looked at the edits that I made to his book. Now, he would write things like, cut this over my dead body in big red pen. (laughs) And then after two days, he would look at it again and think, oh, I see what you mean. Um, But, you know, for our first book, I I realized I needed another 48 hours to respond to his responses. And so the process of being edited really can set you back on your heels. And so the first thing I recommend is take everything in and then go take a walk. let yourself react however you want to react. I'm so embarrassed. Oh my God, I can't believe I wrote that. I can't believe what an idiot this editor is. You know, just sit with all that stuff and then return. Have a good sleep on it. Read it again freshly in the morning and see if if, if clarity hasn't arisen. Um, 
doesn't mean that everything an editor does is right, but it's so important to have different perspectives on, on your writing. You can't be your own editor because you've got your blind spots. Mm-hmm. And so that's an editor's role. Well, in, to show in, you what you can't see. And you're so stuck in your, you're, you're kind of in it, right? So it's really hard. Like you're saying, it's those blind spots and maybe there's things that you're developing in your head that's not written down, but it it's not, the editor is going, wait a second, there's more here or there's, there's stuff that's not making sense, but you're in your blind spots because maybe you see the whole picture in your brain and it's not on the paper. Exactly. An editor's role isn't just to, you know, work on what's there. It's to notice what isn't there that should be. Mm-hmm. And and so with the stop judging yourself, that becomes really important because when we judge ourselves, isn't it because we're, we, what we wind up doing is we shut down, we hide away, we, we don't, we don't let our voice, our authentic voice shine. Isn't that what happens when we judge ourselves? Well, yeah. I mean, if judging yourself were effective, I would be all for it. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we're human. We're going to be judgy about ourselves or we'll be judgy about the people who edit our work. And that's fine. Just don't let it control the process. Mm-hmm. Sit with it. Take some deep breaths. You know, I recommend vodka, but I don't recommend it for anyone but myself. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Return and see if you can't see beyond your own stuff to what, I mean, a good editor serves the writing, not you. Again, you know, it's not my job to care about how much time or effort you put into a certain passage. It's my job to tell you, is it working? And so the, the editor is out there to help you serve your piece, to make it stronger, mm-hmm. not to massage your ego. And the times that I feel I failed as an editor were when I was very reluctant to, to tell someone, listen, I'm sorry, this just isn't working. It's got to go. Or I let myself be bullied. You know? <laughs> then I wasn't serving the work. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing my best. And when you, when you first were getting edited, did you have that thought of, I'm an editor, I should know the better? Well, it was embarrassing. I mean, I have to say my first editing was beautiful. It was on that piece in the New York Times Magazine. And my, my editor was so sensitive and wonderful. Um, I've had very insensitive editing <laughs> with sort of quasi-tragic consequences. And, you know, it was just a process where I had to learn how much can I push back? You know, who, if you're writing for a magazine, you don't have as much say in the final product as you wish. And that was a very hard lesson for me. Um, I won't use any names, but I was once hired to write what's called a service piece for a magazine. That means a sort of how-to. And I was instructed to interview a person who was riding the top of the bestseller list who gave me advice that I thought was breathtakingly stupid. And I was interviewing this person on the phone. And at one point, the person said, I'll say that again, because I didn't hear you typing. <laughs> And I turned in the transcript of that interview and it ended up in the piece um, as though it was advice that I thought was fabulous. Mm. And I really didn't like that, but I didn't have any control over it. Okay. So understanding where you have control, it's, it's, it sounds like a lot of this, as you practice, as you sit your butt down and write and you go mm-hmm. through your experiences, you're going to learn where, where are you at your best? What are the things that you need? And then we're in situations like this with a magazine, where do you have control and where, where, do, where are the boundaries to what you have control over? Yeah, I mean, I will say that the majority of times 
I've been very respectfully edited and I've had the opportunity to push back. Not always, I don't always get what I want, but good editors will listen and, you know, and, and explain to you, here's why we want to make this change. Um, I've had editors that introduced errors into my work. That was embarrassing. <laughs> but more often than not, I've had good, sensitive editors who ultimately made me a better writer. Mm-hmm. So, Betsy, as a writer or editor, I'm not sure which one I'll let you pick. What is the <laughs> lesson? What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Oh, my gosh. I think that the lesson as an editor that took me longest to learn is that when I first offered criticism to people, I took such pains to be so, so kind. And what I didn't take into account was the roaring in their ears. You know, because when you first, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak generally, this is probably not true for all writers, but when I first got edited, oh my gosh, I would just be so embarrassed and angry. I would have all those emotions and I really wasn't hearing properly. Um, I found that as a book editor, I could write someone a literally a 25-page editorial letter, 25 single-space pages, and be so positive and affirming of the author's prodigious talents. And then on maybe on page 18, I would say, listen, I'm so sorry, but I think this paragraph here really doesn't work. You know, we, we're, we're going to need to cut it. And then the, and the writer would say, I was on the floor when I got your letter. <laughs> I mean, I would literally get like, I was on the floor. I'm like, what? And so, you know, people talk about... Um, what is it like praise sandwiches, you know, mm-hmm. like say something positive, then say something negative, then end with something positive. I feel like I needed, you know, a praise hero sandwich, <laughs> <with like, laughs> 90,000 positive things. And one tiny little picture, because I think, you know, when you're writing, you're just, you know, you're just flaying yourself open and putting yourself out for the world. And so it can be really difficult to receive that feedback. So the lesson it took me a long time to learn was I have to be so, so careful when I offer feedback, even though I really believed that I was always offering it constructively and kindly. You know, I read my editorial letters to people over and over and over before I send them because I just want to make sure, will they understand first and foremost that I love this? Mm-hmm. You know, at, when I first began writing letters, I was so proud as a fledgling editor to say, Oh, listen, if you fix this, it'll be even better. And this, and this, and this. And what these people were hearing was, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a train wreck. And, I, and what I meant was, oh my gosh, no, it's amazing. And here's how we can make it even more amazing. But it wasn't how they were hearing it because I wasn't phrasing it right. Mm-hmm. So that took a surprisingly long time to figure out. And even now in my, you know, wizened years, occasionally I'll hear, I'll get, I'll hear back from an author who said, so you hated it, right? You hated it. And I, and I would think like, what part of, oh my God, I love this. Did you hear as I hated it? <laughs> but I think it, you know, the criticism can hit so much more deeply because we've just opened ourselves. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd heard recently that about, because I've always fascinated why, you know, people can say tons and tons of praise and then the one little criticism they say, we latch onto, right? And we throw yeah. out all that great stuff. And I'd heard somewhere that, um, there's like this negative affect and it's stick, it's sticky and it sticks to us because there's some work to do. And that's why we attach to it. And if we could just attach to it in a way of it's, it's a messenger, it doesn't define us. 
right? Exactly. We, we may not fall apart, but a lot of times we we take that in and that negative thing and it sticks to us and then we let it define us. So what you're saying is don't let it define you. Yeah, breathe through it. <laughs> An editor is not out to hurt you. I think I've even read that, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we're designed to pay more attention to negative things. Listen, there's, you know, it's... It, if, if there's a rustling in the bushes and you and I were out in the savannah 50,000 years ago, we are much better off believing that it's a saber-toothed tiger than a bunny, right? Because mm-hmm. if it's a bunny, no harm, no foul. But if we ignored the saber-toothed tiger, we'd be dead. So we are built to be more sensitive to negative feedback. So we can't sidestep our evolution, but we can accommodate it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think that, I think that remembering intention is so important here. A good editor's intention is to make you a better writer and to help you deliver your message. And so if you can breathe through that, you know, check your ego, you know, put it very gently in the back seat and, and, you know, and, and come back to your keyboard with the intention to make your writing better, I think that, you know, it won't be such a bruising experience. You know, I've been ultimately so grateful um, because of the good editors that have worked with me. I mean, the best ones have made me laugh, even as they've improved my work. You know, they understand the delicacy of the operation. The surgery was successful. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of a couple things. Like I have a, a teenage daughter, she's 14. And um, sometimes she forgets that I'm actually here because I, I love her and I, I want to help her, or, you know. I'm, <laughs> and so one of the things about a year ago I started saying was, I'm on Team Mia right? Mm-hmm. I'm on your team. I'm not against you. I am on your team. And that's kind of what I hear you saying, like, as an editor, you're on their team. And you're by these corrections, it doesn't mean it's not defining them that they're lousy, and they're never going to make it. It's here's this work that you have. And how can we polish it up and even make it better so that your exactly. story can show up? Yeah, I mean, I am now a hired gun. And so if you're getting an editorial letter from me, it's because I decided that your writing was worth it. You know, my time is really precious to me. I'm not going to take on anything that I don't think is worth my while. So if you're getting feedback from me, it's because I think your writing is worth it. You know, I won't waste my time. It, there, there have been very, very few occasions where someone has sent me something where honestly I felt that no matter how, you know, aside, of, aside from ghostwriting it, I was not going to be able to bring enough to the table to make it worth this person's while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but otherwise, I'm really there because I want you to be a better writer. And I think your ideas are worth expressing well. And I want them out in the world. And that's why I chose this career. I didn't choose it to make you feel terrible or embarrassed. <laughs> I chose it because I want to help you. And I want to help you be heard. That's my goal. So with that, you know, because your your list of authors that you've worked with and then just your own credentials as a writer is intimidating, right? Your first publications in the New York Times magazine. Um and, and you have these writing workshops throughout the U.S., who are the writers that you work with? Because when, when I introduced you, I said, I don't care if you think you're not a good writer, I'll make you better. Who does that apply to? Anybody who comes to my door with a willingness to be open-hearted and a willingness to learn. I mean, I just had this amazing memoir writing retreat at my home. And there were eight participants and oh my gosh, they were so talented. They were so incredible. I mean, honestly, every single one of them could be in a magazine next week. You know? mm-hmm. And what was beautiful was their willingness to show up. 
um, you know, if you, if you want to hide, don't come to a writing retreat. If you want to learn, come. Mm -hmm. And and if you're willing to learn and sit, just sit down and write and practice and be open to feedback, you're going to get better probably. I I really do. And again, the goal isn't, you know, I, so many people come to me because they want to be published. They want to be published. They want to be published. Don't look for that outside validation. Mm-hmm. Because it can always be taken away from you. I mean, I'm sorry to say that publication, especially when we're talking about books, is usually a process of subtraction. You think that the, the worst thing that could happen to you is a bad review? Uh-uh. The worst thing that could happen to you is no reviews. When I first was in publishing in 1981, there were probably 40 or 50,000 books published a year, you know, which is in itself a pretty you know, sizable number. Um, now, thanks to the magic of that little publish button on Tumblr and WordPress and Amazon and everywhere else, there are probably millions of books published every year. So publishing is really a process of subtraction. You think the worst thing that could happen to you is a bad review? Wait till you get no review. <laughs> so then you really know what awful is. So if you have pegged your self-worth on the external validation of you know, the publication contract and the good reviews and all that stuff, you're likely to feel at the end of the day um, pretty depressed. If instead you aim for how do I, have I succeeded in getting my voice onto the page? Have I been heard? Um, you know, I always ask people, how many, how many lives would your writing have to change for, for you to feel that it was worthwhile? You know, people go back and forth, back and forth, and they finally say, well, you know, I guess I'd be pretty satisfied if I could just change the life of one person. And I'll say, great. What if that one person was you? You, Wow. What if that one person was you? Not even somebody else. Exactly. Make yourself as shiny as you can so you can give your gift to the world. Let your writing be the instrument to shine yourself up. Wow. Oh my goodness. Betsy, that just opened my brain up. Mic drop. <laughs> Truth bomb. Well, you know, because so often, and you're gonna have to come back for another show because we're gonna run out of time, but so often, you know, we get inundated <laughs> with this, you know, the numbers, the numbers, the masses, the masses. You're not worthy until you have, you know, right. file followers, publication, yada, yada, yada. And I know even with the show, I get emails all the time from people thanking me how much this show has helped them. Right. And, and how do you measure that? Like when people ask numbers, I go, how do you measure this? How do you measure this email when this has changed somebody's life? This is one person that we know about. Right. And I have a whole bunch of emails in my inbox, but you know, how do you measure that? But so often in society, we are told you have to measure it by, you know, your rankings, your publishings, your sales, you know, all of that stuff. But which oh, I know better. You know, I, I had the great privilege to work with Martha Beck on. Uh, two of her memoirs, Expecting Adam and Leaving the Saints. Mm -hmm. And Leaving the Saints was actually a pretty harrowing experience. Um, For your listeners who aren't aware, it's the account of her decision to leave the Mormon church and to out her father as uh, the man who sexually abused her. And we got death threats like you wouldn't believe. It was really scary for her. Um, But she was absolutely committed to, to speaking her truth. And for her, it wasn't about, you know, it was about really wanting to keep her sense of spirituality, which runs very deep in her. It wasn't about, you know, kicking the Mormon church or anything. Um, but we got all these letters saying, oh my gosh, you said, you, you spoke the truth for me. I didn't have the courage to stand up against the person who sexually abused me. I didn't have the courage 
to say how whatever religious institution they were in, however that institution hadn't been supporting them, she gave voice to people who felt they had no voice. And every one of those letters, you know, a single one of them would have been enough. Um, the first time she got one, Martha said, now I know it was all that stuff that, we, that she'd been put through. She goes, I know it's worth the while. Mm-hmm. I know why I'm here. And then we got more and more and more of them. But really, just a single letter from someone who, who felt like she had given them a voice by proxy was, was enough. So that's so important for us to realize is that, you know, we don't have to do the masses. It's about, like you said, is it affecting your life? And then how can your voice help other people? Exactly. I mean, I'm, I think when we're our best selves, we're here to serve the greatest and highest good. I mean, that's what I want to do with my life. And I'm sure that's what most of your listeners want to do too. Mm -hmm. So let the writing be your instrument. That's beautiful. So as we wrap up, what are a couple of takeaways for the listeners today? I think um, the biggest takeaway is I want them to look for love, not like. Um, I think there's a part of this process. If you are going to go ahead and try to get yourself published, don't settle for anything less than love. If you're looking for a literary agent, look for love. If you're looking for a publisher, look for love. Um, what happens is if there's any part of you as a writer who's going figuratively hat in hand, with the idea, oh, please, please, just anybody say yes to my writing. I'll take anything. You know, mm-hmm. I don't care how terrible the editing is. I don't care how lackluster the promotion is. I don't care what they, you know, what the packaging looks like. I don't care as long as please, please, please just like me enough. That's not good enough. The first thing you need to fix if that happens to you is your energy around it. Mm-hmm. Um, look for people who are going to partner with you and your writing through love. Love means they will do their absolute best for it. Again, you know, as I said earlier, the publication process is likely not to be super successful if you're the average writer. I mean, the, the, if you, I can't remember what the latest statistics are, but most writers, you know, if they publish more than 20,000 copies of a book, say, that's a runaway bestseller. You know, we, we, we're, our eyes are opened by the reports of mega million sales of, you know, the blockbusters. But the average writer doesn't have that kind of success. So you need to find that success elsewhere. And the best way to find it is by partnering through love. Make sure that the people that you enlist in the process, the editors, the agents, the people who are going to critique your work, the editors, I mean, the publishers, all those people, let them, let them through behind the red velvet rope because they love your work. Like isn't good enough. Like ensures mediocrity at best. So really, that's the most powerful thing I want to leave your listeners with is don't settle for anything less than love. That's awesome. Betsy, thank you so much for being a guest today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thanks, Corinne. Oh, and a pleasure speaking with you too. This is Corinne Motokaitis, and that was Betsy Rappaport. And she was talking about what's it like to be a writer and about writing. So if you ever wanted to be a writer and thought it wasn't possible for you, I really invite you to consider what Betsy has said today. She said, commit, call yourself a writer. It doesn't matter if you've been published or not. And then sit down and write. And remember that it's about if you can change one person's life with what you write, how important is that? And I love the question that she said, what if that one person's life you change is you? Wow. 
that one person's life that you changes you. Wouldn't that just be spectacular? So, you know, so often we make ourselves small. We don't, we get, let fear and doubt get in our way, right? And instead, I just invite you to think about the things that Betsy has talked about and I over the last hour. Sit down, write, figure out your authentic voice. And you're going to do that in the process. And she really believes part of the process is the muck, getting through that muck, doing it. It's not about measuring how many words you write or how much you publish, but it's about writing and getting that done. The other thing that she said that I just love so much was let your writing be the instrument to shine, right? Really let yourself do that. So I thank you guys for listening today because the thing that she reaffirmed for me is that, you know, it's a skill set and you get down and you practice and you write and then, and yes, it's really vulnerable, right? We've talked about that many times on this show. There's a lot of vulnerability, especially when you're writing from your authentic voice, from your heartstrings. And sharing it with the people who've earned the right to hear your story doesn't mean you have to share it with everybody. And remember when Betsy was talking about her first article that was in the New York Times Magazine? She wasn't concerned about the millions of people who are going to read it. She was concerned about a couple of people who've earned the right to hear her voice and give her feedback. Those were the two people that she really cared about. And everybody else, it's like Brene says, they're up in the stands, right? They weren't down in the arena with her. So that's one thing to consider. And then the other is that, you know, we just, we get in our way so often and we think it has to look a certain way. There has to be certain numbers, but it's, or that it's not possible for us because we are such horrendous writers, right? That got in Betsy's way for 14 years. And then she wrote and she's written and she's helped people. But if we can think about it, instead of letting those negative situations define us and instead look at it, what can I learn from this? How can this help me evolve? And that's that growth mindset that Carol Dweck has talked about on the show before. You know, we are all learning. We are all growing. I was talking to my husband the other day and I said to him, I go, you know, I think the key to life is practice. We just need to keep practicing you know, practicing deliberately, taking time off and stepping away and and filling our buckets in other areas and then coming back to practice and practice and refine and tweak and grow, right? Even Betsy, who's this amazing editor who's worked with tremendous writers, right? She needs help. She has blind spots. So I invite you to let go of this idea that you shouldn't have to need help, right? It's, It's about building your team, And that team of people, who are the people that are on your team? And one other thing that she talked about that we didn't really, you know, pinpoint, but she mentioned a lot. And the way I looked, I listened to it was in the language of the show was coming from a place of compassion, right? Having people who have compassion, compassion in the sense that they can give you feedback in a compassionate manner, right? And building that team of people who really care, not the ones that are trying to tear you down or that are coming from this ego place, but the people who are on your team that are really trying to help you grow and evolve. And look for that. Look for cultivating this team of people in your life. One of the things I often ask my clients is, who are the people that are on your list? Who are the people whose opinion matters? Right? And I look at my own life that I have different teams. 
for different aspects or parts of my life. And that's okay because there's people that support me in different manners that I need for the different parts of my life. So thinking about who are the people on your team and how can you start writing or how can you continue to craft your practice of writing to cultivate your authentic voice? Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so. Sold-